Hello and welcome to My Dialorama's Top Picks. I'm Abla Kandlaf doing the intro for once. Film programmer, journalist and researcher with my co-host Coco Green, who very kindly rewrote this introduction <laughs> to have me first. Um, armchair critic and aspiring academic. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalisation, resistance and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery and independent films and series. Now in its 11th year, My Die champions independent film and in using the medium as a platform for under, under, as a platform for underrepresented and often ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter, not LinkedIn, at My Dynorama. And if you like what we do, uh, you can uh, like us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Short link is mydie.link slash Apple and support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate. You can also subscribe to our newsletter for uh, lots of offers and goodies at mydie.link slash subscribe. So this evening we're joined by our guest, theatre director Anastasia Osekafo. Uh, before I give the floor over to her. I just want to flag a couple of things that might be of interest to listeners. So the first one is, um, especially for filmmakers out there, is to get your films in. Emerging Filmmakers Night are currently accepting submissions for for their spring edition. So early, first, second, third, whatever short films you've made, do send them in and you get access to lots of very cool prices, thanks to a number of new sponsors that they've secured. The other thing is, as a member of the newly created Independent Media Association, we would encourage everyone to take part, listen, um, participate in and access the free online Media Democracy Festival, which has uh, just opened. So it's basically a week-long celebration of independent media and is there to promote plurality, accountability, and proper standards in the media, which we currently just don't have enough of. Briefly, I'm not going to flag any films or spend too much time on this, but I just want to call out to ITV to please, 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 please give us a fourth series of Marcella, which I've been really enjoying. So I uh, probably spoke last time about Whitechapel, which is completely bonkers and um, is a very, very comforting old-fashioned crime drama. And I'm obsessed with British crime dramas, which have um, stories that are basically both anchored in real times and places, but plots that are so far removed from reality that it allows you to both identify with the characters and find those reassuring places that you see in, in real life, but also escape into their absurd plot lines. So one of which is Marcella, which I discovered last week, and I've just uh, procrastinated so much and watched all three seasons. The first two are on Netflix, the third one's on ITV Player, and it starts. Uh, it stars Anna Friel as Marcella Backlund, who's a police officer who comes comes back on the job after a number of years as a stay-at-home parent to investigate unusual murders full of the most outlandish coincidences between the characters while suffering from um, blackouts and mental health issues whose whose origin we then le- we then learn and uh, her knob of a husband Socorro, anything you want to say before we introduce Anastasia 
I don't think I have any top picks this week. I mean, I did watch Coming to America, and we we don't have to talk about it because it's too upsetting. I, I can't really do that. Yeah, I can't really talk about it. I don't know if you saw it, Anna. It was very upsetting. But because that was so bad, I came across Dolomite Is My Name, which I had not seen before, and that was a feel-good comedy. So interestingly, as my friend said, that Eddie Murphy wasn't that great in it. You didn't think so. In Dolomite is my name. No, Wesley Snipes was really good in it, though. Very Mm -hmm. funny. And I thought it really worked as an ensemble cast. And it was no history I was familiar with because I've heard people reference Dolomite, but I've never seen the films and I didn't know anything about the comedian who played Dolomite. So it was a feel good comedy about never giving up on your dreams. And that's always a nice message, isn't (laughs) it? So I guess I could recommend that. Yeah, I like that film. I like Dolomite. Um, I thought Eddie Murphy was was okay, kind of. Um, in that role, he kind of played that um, that role that I think is based on a on a real person. Yeah, um, I think he played it quite well. Um, he wasn't like particularly really funny or anything like that, but I think it was adequate. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and I did watch Coming to America, and um, yeah, let me know if you want to ha- have a chat about that. Okay. I don't know oh, if I'm dear. emotionally ready yet because the problem is it was such a build up. I bought a T shirt and everything. I was ready. And I think I was expecting, and that's just it. That's the problem when you build up something in your mind, almost when they, when there's a book that you love and then they make a film out of it. And because you've built it up in your mind, when you see it, you're rarely ever happy. Well, sometimes people are, I've never have been because you just imagine it differently. So I think with coming to America, I imagined so many possibilities and then there was so much buildup and then it was coming out in December and then not because of COVID, then it was March and so perhaps I worked myself up into it, Tizzy, but... Oh, God. But yeah, you can go ahead and introduce yourself, Anna. Yes. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name's Anastasia Osei-Kupo, and um, I'm a director and writer, and I also produce and uh, write poetry. And I've been directing for about over over eight years now. So I started, like, properly in 2012. And... Um, and yeah, kind of uh, since then, I've gone through a lot of assistant directing, directing short plays, and then going went on to direct full productions. Um, so yeah, so that's me. Thank you very much. So we've got you um, on on the podcast this evening to talk more specifically about the most recent play you've directed, which is Typical, that was performed at the Soho Theatre in London and when uh, COVID put a stop to the tour was then subsequently filmed and is now available to stream on the Soho Theatre website. So Typical, just to give a very brief overview before we we discuss it properly, uh, stars comedian, presenter and actor Richard Blackwood. The play was written by Ryan Calais Cameron and depicts the true story of Christopher Alder, who died in police custody in 1998. So Blackwood plays Alder and he recounts his impressions, thoughts and actions throughout that day on that day he died. And it's um, in terms of style, it's sort of halfway between poetry and rap. It's very rhythmic. And he just tells this story of the start of his from the start of his quite normal day as a separated dad of two through to the point at which he leaves the house and then in the evening ends up going to a nightclub and encounters 
increasing acts of subtle and then much more overt racism. And basically the night ends with him getting beaten up and ending up in A&E, where his behaviour is described as troublesome by staff and considered to be worthy of police intervention. And that's when he's taken into custody and he dies in um, obvious, obviously very suspect circumstances. So the first kind of obvious question really is how, uh, Anna, how did you get on board with the with the play? So Ryan contacted me in 2019 with the play and said, do you want to have a read of the play? And do you want to sort of come and talk with me about directing it? And so I read the play and I thought, oh, I, yeah, I love the writing. I love the poetry. I love the rhythm. And I hadn't clocked it was a real story until I got to the end of the play and scrolled back up to the top and then saw based on a true story. And that completely transformed it. It was great kind of before I knew that knowledge because it's it highlights systemic racism. So lots of the things that he's talking about is really familiar to me from experiences that I've experienced being here in the UK as a black woman. Uh, but then when I saw that it was based on a true story and inspired by the true life, kind of events of what happened to Christopher Older, it changed it for me because it made me see how vitally important it is to tell the story. It was important before I knew that kind of information, but it made it even more so um, knowing that I didn't know about Christopher Older until I had read that play mm -hmm. and knowing that there are so many people in the UK who need to know about him, know about his life and so how he died so that we sort of kind of redeem his story because the way he died was so kind of horrible and um, in a really disgraceful fashion that kind of what I wanted to do was in the play, in humanising him, so kind of seeing him as a human being with thoughts and feelings and family and all of that, that we, we humanise him. He's not just a statistic, a statistic who, who died on the floor of a police station. 20-something um, years ago. Uh, so um, I got on board kind of after interviewing and Ryan choosing me. And and then we went through a journey where we took it to Edinburgh for a month. And then it went to Soho Theatre for another month. And in Soho, it was uh, full most of the time and sold out a lot of the time as well. Edinburgh was a good sort of first run, um, quite a challenging one for Richard because there were like the audience members were really small. Sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes he'd he'd kind of wake up because at the start of the play he he's his eyes are closed and he come uh, he's on stage while audience audiences come in. So when he opens his eyes in character, that's when he sees how many people are in the audience. And so that he always describes that moment as really interesting because he, he opens his eyes and he's like, oh, five people in the audience. Oh God, we've um, been there. <laughs> yeah, in Edinburgh. So, um, but Soho was really a joy to do, um, uh, or even more of a joy because Edinburgh was really great, great to start the journey of the play there. Um, because then by the time we got to Soho, it was really in his body and in his performance. And he um, he was just performing it in such a, a much more seasoned way, um, um, as you do if you've spent a month kind of performing a thing. 
um, already. So um, Soho was great. And then we always wanted to bring it back. Uh, and we had planned to do another kind of live version, maybe a tour in 2020. And then COVID hit. So then we decided that we we still wanted to try and bring it out in some form. And the only way we could think of in this sort of pandemic world was film. Uh, because uh, if social distancing guidelines would allow us to quickly shoot it, then we were we could, um, and uh, and then kind of bring it out to everyone while they're in their homes, locked down or in various stages of social distancing. So um, in sort of the end of June, beginning of July in 2020, when the social distancing guidelines relaxed, we took our chance. And uh, kind of with all the COVID restrictions, face masks and social distancing, we we revived the play and shot it over one and a half days. That was really exciting after being uh, in lockdown for for many months. Um, and um, and yeah, so that's sort of how how this came to be. Um, Richard came on board before because um, we we were sort of auditioning people trying to find this black man who could play this part. And Richard was really the only one who came in the room who had the comedic ability that we wanted, but also kind of could be that sense of the everyman. And also who came in and really talked about why he just wanted to come at the play and tackle it and kind of, really nail a one-man play and it being one of his ambitions uh since one of his cousins has you know really nailed one some years ago mm-hmm. and he really talks about his experiences of systemic racism and how how much the project was on his heart and mind um so he he he's kind of the only one that we saw in the audition could do it and could bring something really strong to it so right yeah. so he auditioned for the part you didn't um the the writer or yourself didn't have him in mind to start with yes he auditioned we totally did not have him in mind at all no uh we we kind of went went through a list of really brilliant actors um and kind of all of them were great in their various ways but it didn't quite fit this part and this character and because it's kind of a a person who had to hit certain things you know so they had to kind of have that comedic ability and be that every man and sort of be able to do the the more sort of heart-wrenching parts and do and have that sort of physical stamina and ability to sustain a one-man play and we needed to see that in the audition. We couldn't just sort of pick someone and we were going through lists, going through lists. And then as, during audition, the audition process, it became apparent that uh, we, we need to think more about the comedic side. Because at first we started off with straight acting side, kind of acting ability, like who who do we know can come in and we know he's as a strong actor. Uh, and then when we started to see that actually the comedic side needed to be there because the, of the subject matter and how it sort of twists sort of halfway through the play, um, we, we started to think of 
comedians, uh, comedic actors and comedians who've acted before. And and Richard came to my mind and I thought, this is crazy. So I didn't think he would say yes. I didn't think it would be possibility. And so I said to Ryan and the team, this is crazy, but what about Richard Blackwood? Um, and they were like, oh, interesting. And then we kind of said, we want to call him in for an audition. And um, and he came and and it was great to see what he... Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I was very I guess pleasantly surprised to see how he is on stage because as with I guess many people I know him as a really as a comedian and and a screen actor and I was surprised to see how graceful and agile he was on stage and if you could say a few words about the the actual work you did with him on that. Oh yeah we worked on it all together and we had uh, like a, club, uh, a a movement director um Ingrid McKinnon work with him in the first iteration of the the production and uh, you know thinking about physicality and sort of and then we we discussed sort of what we thought he was like mm-hmm. we kind of was thinking you know he's a bit of like a cheesy dad like yeah. um, you know and he, he he can dance but he doesn't have the really the confidence of dancing and sometimes can be you know can do some bad dad dancing and so we start, we had conversations like that uh, about the character and tried things and he would you know would get him to try stuff and we'd be like yeah we think that's it that's it that's how he moves <laughs> and um and I think obviously Richard has an innate agility and ability to dance and move uh, which is obviously very talented yeah and so some sometimes some of it was making him look like he can't do as well as he can um and sometimes it was a bit it was a bit difficult in rehearsal because we were like no that looks too good you need to make it look worse like you you know you can't um you're not as good a dancer Mm -hmm. or mover as you're making it look but I I think it comes across that he is good which is you know the cat is not it's not bad for the character at all um and uh, yeah, so we kind of arrived at it together and trialed certain things and uh, worked with movement directors. And for the film, uh, we just kind of um, uh, looked at the movement to sort of finesse what we'd done with Ingrid. Coral Messam was our second movement director. We worked with her sort of thinking about uh, finessing the movement that we'd already done um, for, so finessing it for film. Um, and she's a brilliant movement director, and so that that also contributed to how uh, Richard looks on on film. Yeah, so it, it was it was really good to visit that. Do you think going forward? Because so I wasn't sure either what to what to expect, or even how I quite feel about watching the theater production as a film. But I was just saying, I do know that National Theatre does that. So, and it's filmed all over the world, right? Where they have certain National Theatre productions shown in a theatre. But I was saying that's also different than what was on Soho On Demand because that's shown in the cinema. So you do it as a shared experience. So I was wondering, based on, you know, what you know and what you've done with this, with Typical, going forward, do you think there will be more of the type of national theatre productions that are shown in the cinema or do you think it will be more like Soho on demand where you're showing it 
and allowing people to screen it? Or, you know, will this not be the case? It's a strictly a COVID thing and you'll go back to primarily doing things just in the theater. Well, I think that there's been a lot of debate and conversation sort of in theater circles about this kind of putting plays on, on you know, in a, in a digital form. And really, theater in its truest sense is the live performance, but live performance in a shared space. And so I really miss theatre in its truest form, live, you're in this, this actual space with the performers, experience something that won't be exactly the same ever again, because it's done live. And I think it's the most exciting way of experiencing theatre. And typical, I think, definitely feels really different depending on the way you consume it. So live it had a different sort of feeling. That's also like a real experience uh, where you're being moved by this story and there's so many people crying and you can hear the tears and the sobs of people in the audience. It's quite a profound experience. You don't experience that necessarily watching it on film. What, the, what we tried to do was to give audiences a different perspective um, on film because we thought, what can film do? What can film give audiences that we didn't or we couldn't um give in theater and that was that the sort of close-up perspective and different angles and views of the character and uh sort of telling the story and how we could sort of bring to life certain moments in the filmic form is what we concentrated on and so we we worked on that and in the editing we we looked at ways we could sort of cut between um moments where he is changing character becoming different characters and see if we can get a bit of the story being dynamic you know kind of changing between characters and 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 that kind of thing you know when you can't have that live show element filming a show is great and for the National Theatre, I love sort of catching up on shows that I couldn't ever see through their website and through what they put on uh, online. And they've got some amazing quality shows, but it's never the same as being there in person. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. A fairly similar debate is what happened around um, film festivals. So a lot of them have uh, gone on to become hybrid or basically uh, they've all gone online really this year. And you you lose out on really a crucial element of festival, which is the the atmosphere of the festival, the, having people come together to share that space, to share uh, the output is really crucial. And in terms of more, prag- in pra- more pragmatic terms, it's really important for networking. At the same time, having said that, the fact that it's a lot of festivals have been online, have made them accessible to so many people and have made it, uh, have made other um types of content available so festivals have also included this year they've included podcasts they've included specific web content that you wouldn't really have otherwise and I'd I'd like if possible if financially possible really for most festivals to keep that to still happen live and then keep this this element I totally agree I think it's something that I'm talking about like my job at Theatre 503 at the moment Mm -hmm. that we want to have we want to record each show that we put on and um or like one because of accessibility 
because it does mean that the show reaches so many more people than the the live aspect because not everyone can come and be there in the theater because they're in another country because they have certain um uh you know maybe childcare responsibilities all sorts of things in life or they're disabled you know so there's so many things so that's what i love about like about this aspect and that's what I want to see continuing sort of in theatre that we do we do look at that and and with the Covid shutting down theatre in such a brutal way I think this has been sort of a way that we can continue to be present in in the sort of artistic world by putting out the film versions of what what we did live Uh, so yeah so I really 100% agree and hope we continue to do do the film versions though I do think they are they can't take over the original true thing yeah well I think I was more interested too like in what what's likely to happen going forward right in the post-covid and I think I mean but what do you think about that other hybrid that they do where they show the theater production but in a cinema so you still have that shared experience but you're all watching it together like do you think there'll be more of that because I was always surprised that only National Theatre did that, right? And I don't know if that was because they thought that was most likely to sell out and, you know, they would make their return on investment. Well, I think it's not only the National Theatre do it. So there is NT Live and they show they show shows from other theatres as well. So, and I think digital theatre, but National Theatre, I think, do it through cinemas so I think there's different deals, I think. And it's it's mainly who has the money to be able to do that level of filming and then distribution of of the show to cinemas and National Theatre are able to do it. Um, but they but other sh- shows from other uh, theatres go through that and then kind of as the vehicle. And then I think NT Live, um, you know, distributes them as well and also digital theater they do like high quality recordings as well and put and have it online and they did that way before covid um so i think i think that it's when you watch theater even in a cinema there's still an element missing which is it's the the live element the magic of theater is in that it's in that sort of symbiotic relationship and experience of a performance done in front of you you are in the same space and you're transported to different sort of worlds and we might be seeing in the next few years more interesting ways of of having live streaming and interaction of audiences and all of that as technology as well um is is getting kind of more innovative and as we are, and the, you know, the theatre industry is understanding more how to use technology that's already here uh, to to do it. So I think that it's still very new and early about uh, this, the, and the experimentation of it. But I think I I think it's all a plan B in terms of like theatre in its true sense. Like I say, is live in that shared space a shared experience the audience the performers um and and it is different every night because you can't replicate the same performance in the exact way 
every night and so you experience something that is unique when you are there. Moving on to different angle that we wanted to uh, broach in this discussion is uh, aside from the logistics of the play and um, the implications of filming theatre were to do with the actual topic at hand so what, what what response did you get in terms of the subject it exposed in terms of uh, talking about institutional racism? I think we've got some really great feedback about the film and and we got some great feedback about the production when, when it was just a production. And I think a lot of people saying that they weren't aware of Christopher Older's situation and now they are and how heartbreaking it is and how angering it is that that it happened. And I think it's what I'm proud of and what made me really want to work on the show is to get his story out there in a greater way, out there to the masses. And also kind of to let people know that systemic racism is still real, like in this country, it happens in such a subtle way that some people are just unaware of it. And yeah, they're unaware of it. And there's a whole host of people suffering in various ways from the subtle ways that we are treated because we are black and you know certain obstacles that we face bad treatment that we face and because it's so subtle it it's hard to weed it out it's hard to sometimes call it out and what's really really difficult in this country sometimes is having to somehow try and prove that racism has happened Mm -hmm which is like another trauma on top of the trauma. And and so, it you know, the play, what I hope it does is raise awareness and shows that this is a true thing. And hopefully it reduces the amount of instances that black people have to explain and prove that an act of racism has happened against them. Because uh, it happens in such covert ways in this country. And so... I think, I think, yeah, that's what I, I hope that this, this film does. But, you know, like, it's it's such a, an issue and a problem. You know, is it going to change? Is it ever going to really be eradicated? Is racism ever going to stop? You know, you think things improve and then it resurfaces in different ways, manifests in different ways. And so, you know, like, in this country, there's that statistic of, black women being five times more likely to die in childbirth you know because there is those stereotypes and sort of I don't know some mental thinking that I don't know we don't experience pain in the same way or we we are not sympathized with enough our pain is not sympathized with enough kind of being invisible um like there's so many issues and then what the film sort of intersects with more head-on is about deaths in police custody and you know how black people are like disproportionately more likely to to die in police custody the stop and search kind of sort of rules and and all of that is really damaging it's damaging to the black community it's really painful the stories I hear from um, my friends, black friends, male friends, my dad, 
about their encounters with the police is heartbreaking to hear their stories, how they've been treated. So I feel like these stories need to come out some more because I don't know, there's, there's some sort of amnesia, I think, in certain groups of people, certain demographics of people, that they sort of be, are aware and they forget. And then when you bring it to them again, they're like, oh, yeah, it's an issue. And actually, sometimes denied is said, no, there's no issue, even though it's brought in front of their faces. It's a system that we sit in and that needs to be sort of broken. I would imagine where the um, the issue lies is not so much in denying what had happened then, but in trying to make people understand that it's not a question of just a few bad apples. It's not just a question of these were yeah. two police officers who were responsible for a criminal act uh, because they themselves are criminals, uh, but it's got nothing to do with the wider police force. And that's that's the issue with uh, anything hinting at systemic racism. Suddenly people feel very attacked. Well, I think that it's becoming harder and harder for anyone who wants to argue in that way to have any any ground to stand on. Because if, like, if the police, if the institution themselves admitted that they are institutionally racist, like, what else can you you know, what else can you say? Because after the Stephen Lawrence sort of death and that how mishandled that case was, there there's very concrete rulings that, you know, the police are institutionally racist. Now, there are people who say, oh, things are better. Things are better than they were before. But then usually I just bring the more recent cases that are happening in this country and all over the world um, and and that tends to silence people. Like so, I I kind of feel like there definitely are people who, no matter what you say, no matter what rulings there have been admissions by the police, no matter what admissions that that they have made, they will always sort of push back on it because they don't want to accept the the truth that there is systemic racism or it's uncomfortable for them to um accept it um you know there are those, those people i haven't encountered them and i'm sure there i am in a bubble because when i see the vitriol like online in response to things like you know megan markle's yeah. interview and the way that the British media has responded to Meghan Markle and treated her in the headlines, the tabloid news. I do wonder, though, because I'm also like highly critical of the Black Lives Matter movement for similar reasons. Like you're I don't think that policing and incarceration is a root cause of racism. And I think that the, the and the, but the thing but the thing about it is that it, that seems to get the most response and attention. So I wonder, like, with this, because that's just it, like, with this example, I think it's very, if you even do a cursory search, which I did only do a cursory search, right, of the story and the campaign website to get a bit of background about what happened, that's, like, easy to point out. But what about the root causes? And I think then it's, like, that's where you get the pushback, right? It's more about what you're not allowed to talk about. So, I mean, I think the play did in the beginning go through 
the similar instances of more everyday racism, but that's still, it's like, that's what I think is more challenging to bring into focus. So like even looking at, because I mean, I think I'm still not sure, of course, like in terms of stop and search, like racism is like, it's hugely disproportionate, but with prisons, it's like you have lots of people who are just poor and at the margins. Right. So it's like, if we have poverty rates, for example, of black people that if you're talking about not Caribbean so much, they're like one and a half for white British, but black Africans, it's almost, it's more, almost, it's more than double. So how much is this sort of policing of poorer areas and the policing and incarceration of poor black people as opposed to black people overall? Cause I thought what was interesting too about his story, right? Is that they were in the system as children and that's what you see with prison populations like they're highly disproportionate um young parents just never not never in work have been out of work in the past four weeks just really at the margins and i wonder if like because policing is the response to that then policing becomes the target but it's just responding like how society has chosen to respond to social inequity in people who've been shut out of systems to say, okay, we've just chosen prisons to deal with them. So it's like, you can get, you can lower those numbers, but there's going to be another institution to pop up because the root causes aren't dealt with if you get where I'm going. So it's like, I'm not sure. And, you know, to me, Black Lives Matter is the clearest example of that like, okay, you can change policing all you want, but that's not a root cause of racism. So I wonder what you think about telling those kinds of stories if we even know because people disagree on what the root causes of racism are i think the film typical doesn't or what we we don't seek to kind of say like the police are to blame for racism but the fact that sort of is inspired by the true story of christopher older does bring the police sort of into into the equation into kind of their conduct and what they did and on that night and everything um, but as you mentioned, we like the play, um, the majority of the play goes through lots of different instances of everyday racism, uh, which you're right. Those are the areas that people do push back on and kind of gaslight black people and say, oh, no, it's not true. It's not happening. And that's where that sort of, you know, trauma, built up trauma can can arise. The years of being told that you're just imagining it or you know, it's not true and all of that. Um, I think what what you said was really interesting because in this country, class does play, you know, a, a, does have an impact. It does. Class does have a big impact. And I think that it's a s- systemic racism, but it's, it's a system that is, yeah, it's encompassing so many different things. And policing is just, you know, one of the symptoms of, like, of this disease. Uh, and and class kind of does intersect because you know when you look at uh, socioeconomically in in the areas that are like the most multicultural and and all of that um you might see some of the the poorest people um because i think there's a system that is designed to try and keep certain people poor uh or or disadvantages them or creates barriers that stops them 
being able to um, succeed, thrive financially. And when there's that, all sorts of things kind of arise and come about because of that. But it's also something specific for black men, though, right? Because when we talk about prisons in this country, it in this disproportionality, because if you like poverty rates, Pakistanis, for example, and Bangladeshis are poorer than black people in terms of higher rates of poverty, right? But their prison numbers don't reflect that. So what is it about like black men that reads criminality from a very young age, right? And can infect how their it affects their educational outcomes and affects their employment outcomes, which then also feeds into the stop and search and the incarceration outcomes. I think what I would say is cologne like colonialism <laughs> is like the deepest thing it's actually where mm-hmm. the root of all of it is because mm-hmm. we're a country that is that was literally formed built because of colonization and all the thinking and the stereotypical thoughts about black people and about people of color in general come from all the racist sort of rhetoric that they use to excuse slavery and like all that the country, this country did to several countries all over the world. And so I think that black people being the darkest of, you know, people of color, that um, the the racist rhetoric that they used to excuse, you know, some of their actions was on kind of looking at our skin, dehumanizing us, seeing us as animals you know as as scientific experiments uh, like all sorts of things that happened through colonization and um slavery and all that happened you know centuries ago that the british um led on that has led to today so that permeates everything uh, that we see today as well and i think is quite a complex problem and it's complex because we're not taught our history enough. And so all that we see now is a, is a result of what's happened in the past. But not everyone knows all the ins and outs of the past and sees how the past permeates now. But there's also two things to consider, right? Like, so one is that Scotland and England and Wales out of Europe, right? They're incarcerating the most, right? So I think there's something cultural going on in terms of how the UK is responding, right, to what they perceive to be criminality and a way to reduce criminality, policy-wise, not in terms of what people think, right? And then the second thing is, though, what's interesting about those numbers, though, for Black men is it's highly disproportionate to Black British, not Black African or Caribbean. So if you break it, yeah, and it's interesting because if you break it down into those three, those are very different numbers, I wonder what's happening there in terms of, because it would be different, right? If you obviously are born here and you go through the, you're institutionalized here versus migrating here and working here. Those are two very different experiences. So I wonder like, is there something like, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I always forget the name of the, there's this presentation. It's really good. And it's called, is it the conspiracy to destroy black boys? But it is all about that pipeline. And I wonder, is there something there specifically about an institution going from school to work to prison that is reserved specifically for black boys? And and even though I know, like I I did say, like, I I think there is too much emphasis placed on 
policing and incarceration because that's not the generally what black people are experiencing but i think it is one of the most egregious examples which is why i think people talk about it so much because it's easy to point out the problems but there is something there between those three groups that's very disproportionate and different like hugely so well i i think that there is something to do with culture here like i think someone who's black british so not just black boys but like black people who are black british so were born here brought up here went through all the system of here all of that kind of are affected by a system by that systemic racism which you know is sort of some we don't always know what is exactly happening but what the system does it makes you um it it tells you as a black person be smaller contain yourself um you you are less as a woman, you are not as beautiful because everything that's telling you about beauty is lighter skin, longer hair, like all straighter, silky hair. Like there's so many things that subliminally you are you are absorbed. But if you're an African person in Africa, you were born and brought up in Africa, went through the African system. Yes, it is like you are still affected by um, colonization. So as a Ghanaian, I'm um, a Ghanaian heritage. Um, but I know that my Ghanaian family who lived and were brought up in Ghana, um, they have a different um, sort of mentality, a, a little bit of a different mentality in that they were did not they were not brought up in a country that says um, they are a minority or they are other. They are the norm when they walk around the street. Their food, the, the food that they love is the norm. And so when I went to Ghana, um, in 2019, for the first time as an adult, I I felt the difference. I felt the difference. I I saw black people being able to be like, to express themselves, being fully themselves, where it's through dance, through music, through creativity, in a greater, freer way than what what I've been able to see in Britain. And there is a difference. But I, I do see that colonization does affect the mindset of Africans in Africa as well, because, you know, when when I go there and I open my mouth and I speak and there's indigenous like Ghanaian people saying I love your accent and and their mentality being that everything sort of foreign is better than them and and how their accent is not as good as a, as a British accent, like all of that that have come through colonization is still there is still in their mindset, is still affecting them, um, is still a developing country because of colonization. Like all of that problems are there, but it's different. It's different. Like so when when an African person coming comes to Britain, like they've gone through a different kind of system and I think have a different way of responding to certain things. Um, a black British person having the built up systemic kind of um brain conditioning will respond differently to the police i think than someone who is who has been brought up lived in africa or just like for a long time and has come as an immigrant there there will just be different ways of responding to those things um which you know which i think would would then have a different uh, effect on the way the the police um treat treat them um, I don't know. What do, what do you think about that? 
I think, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, I was actually wrong. I was thinking of the stop and search that have highly disproportionate numbers, not the incarceration, because I couldn't find the breakdown for that. So sorry, I was talking about stop and search. Um, but I think you have, I think you have a different understanding of the system, certainly, right? If you're from that country, then that's all you know, that's going to be your common sense. And I think when you come anywhere as a foreigner, everything is a learning curve. And I think your own understanding of your place in the world is what happens in that interaction, right? So it also has to do with how policing works in the country you're from, your expectations for the host country, so to speak. And I think that would all be different. And I'm sure age plays a role too, because there was, and this is research from the US, but what he was discussing was that if you're a you know, middle-aged professional black man, you're, you know, you are not going to be stopped and searched like a young black man, certainly not. So I wonder if age plays a factor too, because if you're, I couldn't find the numbers for that, but I would think that migrant populations are obviously older because (laughs) you migrated here versus someone who's that 16 to 24 range or under 30, where it would be totally different for you. And being raised in a sort of stop and search and having that be a hot topic, the antagonism, the stress, the racism, I think it would be, um, yeah, everything would be different about that. I would imagine. I, you can pick people out. That's just it. I, I think any, you know, you can pick out the black foreigner versus the black person. Not always. Right. But I think that's also, um, yeah, also something to think about. But I'm sure that would vary regionally too, because of course it was diff- interesting to see the difference between what happens in London versus mm-hmm. everywhere else, because they they break down those numbers too, right? So I think there is something different about um, you know living in central London. I'm sure, or even living in yeah. East London is going to be different from West London. So um, it's about yeah, it's about who's who's targeted and how. And um, I just wanted to pick up on one thing you mentioned, Anna, which was about um, colonialism, which I, I completely agree with. And I think one of the biggest issues is that it's it's not over. It's an ongoing issue. We've got the issue really of neo-colonialism now um, and the um, really the, the plundering of resources through major international organisations, the control of uh, national banks and systems and so on. Um but in the last year, in my just in my experience, I've seen some level of change to the discourse, especially around, uh, you know, around the time when they started toppling the statues and so on. So I don't know if you feel like if you felt that and if you, if you feel that might usher in some level of change, especially in terms of um, education and schools. Mm, I hope so, that the level of awareness has truly increased and that there will be a change to the way that we teach history in this country and that we actually teach the history of this country and instead of focusing on different things. Uh, I think it's still really surprising to me that you can go to school in this country and you're taught about you know, the Egyptians and the Romans and all of that and you're not really taught about colonization and which is specifically related to this country you're not taught enough about this country and what Britain did and what the British Empire did so I hope it changes things I hope that there is change but yeah I think that there needs to continue to be momentum 
and there needs to yeah. be a continued fight if changes happen. Well, I mean, I think the important thing you said, Ablin, but well, you too, um, Anna, is that thinking about what it is that needs to happen to change the public consciousness, because that's what we're really saying. It's like we want to shift the conversation. And how do you shift the conversation? Because even though I thought, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes at the statue toppling because it's like, well, who cares about that if you can't afford to go to uni anyway, or you can't even afford to enjoy the downtown area to see the statues. It, well, but but then it raises the, the, the question though, right? It's like, can you shift the culture by changing the conversation to shift public consciousness? Because it has to be thought of as an issue first, right? And that's always a key question. Like I've taken, you know, for a while I thought I was going to do some sort of social worker degree, silly, silly, silly young woman. And I took some postgraduate classes in social work. And that was always a key question. Like who decides when something is a social issue? And then who decides when you take action on that issue? And then who decides then that it becomes normalized? Because all the things we take for granted now, even public education, right? That wasn't given. We take it for granted now and say, oh, it's obvious, but it wasn't always. Like people had to go through that process to say, no, this is has to be something that the public all cares about. And I think a challenge in this country, like you were saying, Anna, is the black population is only 3%. So I think the only way to talk about it is in the broader sense of colonialism. Because you know what they do teach in this country is the Industrial Revolution, which I always found bizarre because it's like, how can you teach Industrial Revolution without not, talking about not where all, all that cotton came from? Not all schools. And I think that's the, that's what the, the massive issue I have with the education system here. You said not all no, schools talking no, about Industrial Revolution. No proper, Are you sure? proper national curriculum. And it's one of the most um, fragmented school systems in Europe, probably the most. So no, not all schools. Some schools would just t decide what they teach. I, I had a friend who spent two years just learning about Elizabeth I and that was <laughs> But even then, Elizabeth the first, she was the one who kind of kicked that off yeah, as a high gear, they, right? Slavery. They pick the slave and choose what they mention right? about her. So life. you could, but that's the thing that's bizarre. Yeah, but see, that's what I mean. Like that's also yeah. bizarre, right? That you can talk about any of the figures in the past four hundred years was talking about because what I find that people love to share with me, bizarrely, both migrants, you know, when I, you know, was doing activities in London. <laughs> They love to share with me, well, you know, the UK ended the slave trade. It's like, well, let's talk about how they profited and how they did it. Like, I don't want to hear about how they ended it. And just the pride that people felt to share with me to say, you know, we helped you people. It's like, uh, you didn't. <laughs> So we'll stop there for this evening. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us. Again, uh, please tweet us your comments at MyDialorama. You can email us, contact at MyDialorama.org.uk with any requests or questions you might have. Um, lastly, as Anna mentioned, the impact of the British tabloids, please watch out for this week's Media Democracy Festival. So that's it for us for this evening. Thank you very much for listening.